This too is futility and striving after the wind. I'm intending on covering the rest of chapter 6 this morning. Um, Let's just say in your notes I'm planning on doing that. (laughs) I'm probably going to stop us halfway through um, and sort of redirect us a little bit. It's kind of a, a tough passage and I'm thankful for Robert as he picked the songs because we need that joy and <laughs> rejoicing because there's some heavy stuff that Solomon's going to lay out for us and we really just have to take the journey as he takes us on it. Um, so I don't, didn't want to rush through some of these things but wanted to spend time here and dwell on the thoughts that he gives us. So we might wind up just hanging a little bit in chapter 6 but just bear with me. We'll come back and, and look at the rest of the chapter next week. But coming into chapter 6, there are several things that Koheleth is going to deal with. And he's going to touch on really three of life's mysteries. Riches without enjoyment, labor without satisfaction, and questions without answers. And really, when you look at everything in chapter 6, it's all about that. They, they raise questions, right, for us. And, and this is what he does when he deals with the riches without enjoyment, labor without satisfaction... He really does leave us asking questions, even though he may not ask them himself in a passage. The way that he presents everything, it it sort of leads us in that direction. But he also gives us some great things to think about. And I have to do this because, you know, when he uses this word Havel in Hebrew, it's a pretty elastic term. And it has to be because, you know, when Solomon is sitting down through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and writing this book as he is going through, thinking through the process that he went through of, you know, thinking the way that the world thinks and then trying to get his mind back where it needs to be. And that journey that he takes us on, he uses this term Havel and it has such elasticity for the things that he's going to address in this book. And so in one sense, it's good to render just vanity all the way through that. And, and every translation will pick a word or meaningless and so on. And they will do that, but it takes on different nuances depending on the context in which we find it. And so as we go back and look at some of the passages we've already looked at, and also in chapter 6, when he uses Havel in in the sense of transientness or fleetingness, this is when he is describing man's life. He addresses that in chapter 6, verse 12, and then from this point on, He's going to use it in this way as he walks through the next few chapters. The other thing is that he will use Havel in reference to that which is perplexing or enigmatic. And he uses it when things seem to contradict the moral order of the world. One such example is in chapter 8, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes. There's futility that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. In other words, it's interesting because when you look at Proverbs, Proverbs tells us this is how the, the world works. Embrace wisdom and learn how to live life with skill. But the thing about Proverbs is that we need to understand that every proverb is essentially, it is a pithy statement of general truth. In other words, there are exceptions. The righteous don't always thrive and have everything and the wicked don't always fail and falter. Sometimes they have the good things in life. 
And so Solomon helps us to understand that going through Ecclesiastes, but he also acknowledges the fact that we wrestle with these things. When we see this happen, we have questions. And so when he talks about these kinds of things, he will dwell on the enigmatic or the perplexing elements of life. The other thing is that he is going to, from this chapter on through the rest of Ecclesiastes, is he's going to use enigmatic phrases and also phrases like who knows or who can tell or other equivalents to this as he walks through chapter 6 and on through the end of Ecclesiastes. And so he's going to continue to ask these questions. And he's going to challenge us to think as we go through this. So as I said before, chapter 6 is a transitional chapter. And one of the things that is interesting when you get to chapter 6, it's kind of like Proverbs. If you go in Proverbs, just go read through it this week. In the middle of Proverbs, chapter 16, starting in verse 6, or verse 9 of chapter 16, begins a grouping. There's three groupings of, of Proverbs that start in 16.9 and run through 17.1. And there are these parallelisms that run through that, the, the grouping, and there's three of them. And it, the interesting thing is, if you look at the center of Proverbs, you will notice that 16.9 begins with human action and then God's providence. And then the third grouping starts off the same way. The casting of the lot in the lap, God's providence. Every decision is from the Lord. So really what in reality that you have in the middle of Proverbs is, in this book that tells you that you can live life skillfully, you have a reminder God is sovereign in control of everything. So the outcome may be different than what you expect from your actions. So what's interesting is that when we come to Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to do a similar thing. He is going to make a transition in chapter 6, verse 9. And this is how he does it. He ends verse 9 with the phrase, notice with me, This too is futility, striving after the wind. This is the last time he uses this full phrase in Ecclesiastes. In other words, it's used in the first half of the book, but it's not used in the second half of the book. This is a transition point. And really then, verses 10 through 12 are the transition piece into the rest of the book. And he talks about the sovereignty of God. Now I leave that for you to dwell on, but it's interesting how Solomon does that. And in Hebrew, actually, chapter 6, verse 9 is exactly in the very center of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew text. So it is interesting the journey that Solomon is going to take us on as he walks through this. And we are going to continue this thought, possessing everything, enjoying nothing. And we started to look at a full treasury, riches, honor, wealth, and honor. And this is intriguing to me because I started thinking back to when Solomon had the encounter with God. And in 2 Chronicles 1.11 it says this, And God said to Solomon, Because you had this in mind, and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches, wealth, and honor, such as none before you has possessed, or who will come after you. It is interesting that he uses the exact same phrasing that God uses of him in this passage in chapter 6. In other words, this brings this account 
to such meaningfulness for Solomon as he recounts this. In other words, he's not merely speaking from observation, but there is this element of experience that he's referring to. But nonetheless, he is going to draw this observation, and we would all have it. How fortunate would be a person who lacks nothing. And this is what we find in the first part of chapter 6, verse 2. God giving riches, wealth, and honor so that his soul lacks nothing that he desires. But then here's the hard part. How miserable it is if he or she cannot enjoy the blessings of life. And this is the issue that Solomon stirs up for us in this. How can they have everything and God grants them everything, but then they can't enjoy all of this? So then comes his observation. And this is important for us to understand because he is going to keep coming back to this thought over and over again, the fact that God is in control. So notice his wording carefully. God gives some people great wealth, honor, and everything that they could ever want, and yet God has not empowered them to enjoy and yet a stranger will enjoy them instead. Now the verb that he uses here is in the hifil in Hebrew, and that means that it's causative. He caused them to enjoy this, or he doesn't cause them to enjoy this. So does not only God give these gifts, he also gives the enjoyment. So it's interesting that William Brown had this observation, then he says ownership is thus a misnomer. One's possessions are exclusively gifts of God and easily as God gives, so God takes away to give to others. The givenness of material possessions is like a two-edged sword. God can do what He chooses. He can give to you or He can take away from you. In Paul's experience in Philippians 4, he talks about this, that I have, I have learned how to the secret of contentment in any and every situation in life, Right? whether I'm living in plenty or I'm living in want. And the secret to that contentment was Christ. But the wording is important there. He learned how to be content. So in a sense, Solomon is going to exhort us to be content in these things and to understand that God is in control. So two things we have to keep in mind, and he will bring this to our minds later as he walks us through the rest of Ecclesiastes, First is this, when we find ourselves in this kind of situation, we need to understand that God is wise and He attains His ends in a way that glorifies Him the most. I know this is kind of hard for us sometimes. But the realization that God's endgame isn't that we're happy. It isn't that He doesn't provide happiness for us. We have a lot of happiness in our life, do we not? But that's not God's end game. God's end game is to glorify Himself. And whatever He can do to bring that about, He will do that. And, and really, in reality, if God is glorified in whatever situation we find ourselves in, if God is glorified, that should make us happy. And that is what we should be content in, is that God is receiving glory no matter what the circumstances that we are in. The other thing that Solomon is going to remind us of as he begins this transition in chapter 6, verses 10 and following, is that God's ways are beyond man's comprehension. We can't always understand what God is doing. It's interesting because I was reminded of this situation in our lives, mine and Les's, early on. 
when we found out that we were having our first child. And we at the time were doing youth ministry and college kids and we had been walking with them through high school, some even back in junior high, but we had walked them all the way through high school and discipled them and, and now all in, into college and we continue to walk with them. And so when we found out that she was pregnant, well, of course, we're excited and we told them all, you know, they were like our kids until we started to have our own kids. Uh, and Les had a miscarriage the first pregnancy. And I was sharing this in church one Sunday evening after we found out. And one of the kids, Cameron, who I've been discipling for a long time, just ran out of church. He couldn't handle listening to that. And I never realized how much it, it broke his heart until I talked to him later. But in our conversation with each other, I had to remind him that, that we don't always understand everything that God is doing. But God is wise and God is good. And God is bringing about his glory. We must trust him in these kinds of things. Little did I know that God was getting us ready for other things in life. The next example or observation that Solomon makes is in verses 3 and following. And he's going to talk about a full quiver. A father of a hundred children. And again, this is another yesh. So the, word, the words that begin verse 1 of chapter 6, there is, they carry all the way down through these examples that he gives us. And this is another one, a large family. A man may have a hundred children. And we know that scripture declares that numerous offspring is a significant blessing from God. And it's interesting that when you look at Psalm 127, a psalm that Solomon wrote, he acknowledges this fact there. And he could very well fit the description that he gives here, considering how many wives and concubines he had. But it's also interesting that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, had 28 sons and 60 daughters, 88 kids in all. Now that's a handful. <laughs> I thought six was a lot. And then I realized what a sense of humor God has when he gave us twins at the end. Thanks for that. Twin boys at that. It's interesting that there is no concern here of sort of this carbon footprint, right? They didn't care about these kinds of things. But he moves to talk about this longevity of life. And he adds on the fact of not only having many kids, but also living many years. But he says the same problem is the same as what we've seen before. And that is there's no enjoyment or satisfaction. Verse 3, he says, however many they be, whether it's years or whether it's kids, but his soul is not satisfied and not even receives a proper burial. He can't even go out well. I mean, at least one would think if you lived a harsh life, at least you'd have a proper burial. And at least there'd be people around to, to pay tribute to you and to remember the, the, the life that you lived and the things that you did and so on. But he says he doesn't even get to enjoy this. And burials for them were important. The kevurah, this was a responsibility for the, for the living that they had in regards to the dead, that they must fulfill this. And if you didn't deal with the corpse properly, this comprised of dishonor and oftentimes was emblematic of being a curse. In other words, to die without mourners and honors was considered worse than being born dead, even if you had many children and a full life. There were things for them culturally that really stood out. And then that leads Solomon into this very sobering comparison. In 
And it's interesting the examples, the analogies, the illustrations that he chooses in this book. Because he has a way of halting us and not wanting us to, to go past quickly, but to ponder what he's really saying to us. And really what he's saying to the world. Of trying to find contentment in life without God is impossible. So he brings this comparison in verses 3 and following. He says, better is the miscarriage than he. Literally, I would render it stillbirth, and that is what the term is. And we find it in Job chapter 3, verse 16. As he opines, he says, better off as a miscarried or stillborn infant rather than having suffered the loss of all his children, possessions, and health. This is his lamentation. I find this interesting with Job because remember how Job chapter 1 begins, right? Job is stated as, Declaring that the Lord gives, the Lord take is away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, he rips his clothes and he shaves his head, but he also then falls down and worships God. I find that an intriguing response. Sometimes we forget the first part of the response. He really was sorrowful. This was a grievous time in his life. But at the same time, he didn't fail to glorify God. Even though he didn't understand everything that was going on which is a challenge to the rest of us. We may have these moments in life, right? Or David in Psalm 58.8, he uses this description, this condition, this miscarriage or stillborn to describe how the wicked and violent men should be removed from this life. This is a powerful expression. And the reason for these kinds of expressions is not to focus on the duration of life, but the quality of life. In other words, Solomon characterizes this, if you notice in verse 4, that this is futility and this is obscurity. And he is saying, this is better for you than for you to live your life, to have everything your heart could desire, and then not being able to enjoy it. You're better off being stillborn. Or as he renders it in verse 4, no memory of a stillborn infant. Now some have suggested in verse 4, in reference to this, that he ends the verse and its name is covered in obscurity. Some have taken this to suggest that maybe the child wasn't named. And that was a part of the custom back then. So it wouldn't be unusual. They didn't normally name a child that was miscarried or stillborn. And the reason for this was that they thought that it would help them be able to deal with the grieving easier if they didn't put a name to the child. But in reality, the Hebrew is very clear for us, and he means this, that no one recognizes the name. In other words, the child is given a name, but the fact that the child never enters into the sphere of existence, no one knows its name. We know each other because we experience each other. We go through experiences in life. I know you because I see your character and I see things about you and, and know and learn things about you. And so there, there's this identity that you, you can see in regards to the name now. But with a child that was never brought into existence with everyone else and no one interacting with that child, no one knows its name. It's an intriguing passage. Because little did I know, you know, we had, Les had a miscarriage, two of them before we had Ian. 
The second one, she had in Russia, and that was a tough one because we had no access to a hospital. And as you know, those who have a miscarriage, the child still has to pass. And if the child doesn't pass, then a lot of things can go really, really wrong. Well, we had no means of getting to a hospital or anything like that and no health care. There was no such thing there. And so we just had to trust God and walk through it together. But all through these times, God had prepared us because here we are before the twins came. Lust was pregnant again. And this was after a series of miscarriages. And this time, she had stillborn, our stillborn daughter, Lizzie. And that was a tough one because with, with the other miscarriages, you don't see the child, really. But when Lizzie was born, Les had to go through the whole process of giving birth to her. And then they wrapped her up, and then we held her. And I can still see her face today. She's buried now in Ridgefield, and that was a tough time for us as a family. We didn't have anyone alongside of us. It was just me, Les, and the kids, and we thought it's better for us to go through this like this. But we asked Kayla, and Kayla named her, and we remember her name. But there's others who don't, and there's many who won't, because she never entered into existence with the rest of us, not, not like this. Solomon says, this is so much better than having everything you want and not being able to enjoy it. So Solomon is going to draw on this imagery, and it has well been said by one that better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout one's life. This is the point that he makes. And this is the emptiness and the frustration of life without God. And the encouragement that we have as believers when we walk through these things is that we know that we can have contentment no matter what happens. Because we stand at this point in God's revelation to us. But we need to try to understand what Solomon was going through. And we need to understand what the world is going through. And we need to be able to explain to the world the futility of their existence without God in their life. Child knows no frustration, Solomon says, verse 5. They don't know frustration. They don't know disappointments. They don't know the enigmas of life under the sun. It's unrecognized futility better than recognized and experienced futility. It's better not to go through this, right? As the saying goes, better to have loved and lost than to not have loved at all. Solomon says, not so. Not so with this. And he goes on to say that the child has rest. He and she does not have to endure the conflicts of life under the sun. And this is where he ends us in verse 5. It is better off than he, and literally it is this in the Hebrew, more rest has this one than that one. There is rest for this child because they don't have to deal with the futility of everything in life. They don't have to deal with the frustrations. They don't have to deal with the enigmas. They don't have to wrestle with the questions that we have. They don't have to seek for contentment in life. Solomon then takes us in verse 6 to the full life, one who lives 2,000 years. The interesting thing in the conclusion that he brings with this one, he says, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, 
Do not all go to one place. In other words, the destination is the same for all. He's going to build off that thought later, but he's talking about the place of Sheol, the place of the dead. He then moves us in verses 7 through 9 to the elusiveness of satisfaction and rest when it comes to our labor. And literally, he says, there is no filling up. There is no satisfaction. There is no fullness of life. You can seek for this in your labor, but it's not going to be found there. Ultimately, you find no satisfaction in what you do. The futility of one's labor in light of the insatiable nature of the human appetite. Notice verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Literally, his soul is not satisfied. You can work, 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 and you are never going to find satisfaction in that. Because you will never have enough. You will never work enough. You will never consume enough. We've seen these truths before. He leaves man sitting like he's an empty pit. And literally, he says in the Hebrew, appetite here is the word nephesh, which is soul, translated to most other places. In other words, your soul is not going to be satisfied. Work doesn't bring satisfaction to an empty life. Only God can fill that space in your life. And labor can't do that. Man is then a bottomless pit. Nothing can fill him up or satisfy him. Work would have some value if it could bring satisfaction, but it doesn't. It's interesting with the description that Solomon gives us here. It's hearkening back to chapter 1, right? Those cycles that we see that just seek to keep going on and on and on and on. The cycle never ends. Man is never satisfied. Man is never content. Solomon is going to take us through the rest of this, and, and I leave you to the rest of this chapter to, to ponder on. We'll come back and, and look at the concluding verses in light of the fact that he will set us up for what is to come in regards to God's sovereignty.